Welcome to episode 94 of TechSync, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, our guest is Amy Hoy. Amy has created a huge amount of online products, and you can read about those at unicornfree.com. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the show. Hi. So I'll make it a little more specific. Justin? Yeah, go on. <laughs> with the intro. So, um, Amy, you've done quite a bit, which is you've done uh, an ebook. You created an ebook called Job, uh, JavaScript Performance, uh, about JavaScript performance. You've launched uh, with a few other people a, uh, a time tracking and invoicing application called Freckle, uh, which is a web app. You've it seems like you've organized and hosted uh, a number of different conferences about launching software, launching info products, uh, about JavaScript. And you are doing a lot now in terms of just talking about the power uh, and leverage that you can gain from selling, creating and selling info products. So that's a lot. <laughs> she also has a, a masterclass uh, that you can subscribe to, I guess, as a, as, a, as a member, a monthly member. Something I'm thinking about but haven't done yet, actually. So you're getting ah. ahead. <laughs> okay. So uh, the the um the the bad part about texting is that we're disorganized and we jump around a lot. The good part is we'll eventually get to everything. <laughs> so right. let, let's uh let's see where to start. Um uh, one thing I just think is interesting is your unicorn unicorn free sort of mantra which is it's just sort of a no bullshit approach to uh business. And maybe we could just start by talking about how you came up with Unicorn Free and um what it's all about in your mind. So the short story of how I came up with Unicorn Free as the blog and the name is that I was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I found in my I, my uh iPhone notes application I had written this down and I think I know why I wrote it down, but I'm not sure. I wrote down um Unless you can monetize rainbows and glitter, you shouldn't base your business on a unicorn. Right. And I think I wrote this down when I was in the Schatzkammer in Vienna, which is like the treasure chamber where they, they keep all of the, well, the treasures that the, the Habsburg Empire had amassed. And one of their most treasured treasures is like an eight feet tall, eight foot tall narwhal tusk. But of course, they thought it was a unicorn horn. And um, that's the reason that there's a narwhal impaling a unicorn on my blog header, because narwhals, the truth, are stranger, but also more awesome than unicorns, the fiction. And looking at the startup world or the business world, the vast majority of news coverage of discussions is, is very tabloid-like you know, it's like, well, this person got their business acquired for X million or they have a, you know, a 50 million round C or the valuation is currently at 6 billion and they said no to Google, you know, all this stuff. And that's great for them. And I'm sure that um, everyone, well, no one would mind that kind of success, at least on paper, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. But if you look at the actual tabloids, which you can't help if you're like, go to the grocery store, uh, it's always about, well, you know, who is Angelina Jolie with now? Or, you know, who has Jennifer Aniston wanted to punch? Or what has Britney Spears done? And so what I like to tell people is that, sure, you know, your chance of marrying Angelina Jolie is theoretically higher every time she marries somebody else. But the fact of the matter is you're never going to marry Angelina Jolie. <laughs> right. And right. the, the chance, which is similar to, um, even though she's, you know, all over the news media all the time. Um, but getting acquired by Google or suddenly striking it rich overnight is the same thing. Sure, it happens to somebody, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen to you. And that, 
I personally actually am not really big into risk. I do things that look risky, but I don't do them in a risky way. So with my business, I mean, I want to be rich, sure. Um, but I'm building up to it. So I've got these products that deliver like seriously good value to people who buy them, makes them happy. I get to help people. I get to earn money. And that money does increase over time. And I'm not building something that I think is going to grow huge and then get bought. But what so, if you grow huge and don't get bought, you know? So that's, that's my sort of unicorn-free approach to business is creating a product that delivers great value, that people love, and charging for it. Which is essentially applying all good old-fashioned business principles to the modern internet world. Absolutely. Right. And you, you make a really good point on your um, sort of uh, about synopsis on your um, website. You say real businesses charge. Some might accuse me of creating and promoting lifestyle businesses, but I prefer to call them profitable businesses. So I think that's a really good point. The lifestyle business is sort of is a pejorative, meaning like it's sort of absolutely not worth thinking much about. And you can understand from VCs who have these billion dollar funds and they're trying to move the needle and they only have so many people can manage the investments and they're like, well, you know, it's a hitch driven business. And so we need these to be, you know, multi hundred million dollar to billion dollar exits. So and because they're such, they tend to hit the news, that's what everybody focuses on, but that's not reality for most people. That's your Angelina Jolie's of, uh, of the business world, the internet world. So Exactly. The, the everyday successes aren't sexy enough to get written about, and so they don't, they're not in your consciousness. I mean, psychological research actually shows that the more you hear about something or read about something, the more likely you think it actually is to happen. For example, terrorist attacks, and I think right. startup acquisitions and those, those huge exits. Are equivalent about, like, about the same likelihood. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Funny. Um, you know, I, I'd like to almost maybe start with uh, your background a little bit. So, you know, because w there's a lot of stuff we can talk about, but let's just start from the beginning. I mean, how did you get into writing code and freelancing and all that, to, which was sort of the precursor to all this other stuff? So I've been freelancing since I was, I think, 13. So it's been mm. a been a long long road to where i am now <laughs> and, and don't um, tell me you're like 17 now because we already interviewed no. Jessica, uh, and it's pretty depressing when like 17 year olds are <laughs> doing stuff <laughs> i'm almost 27 so all right oh. well let's make us feel so bad okay <laughs> but i feel like i'm about 40 if it makes you feel better <laughs> i feel like i'm about 40 and i'm 40 so how about that <laughs> well you know <laughs> at least it's accurate right <laughs> Um, so I've, I've been freelancing for a very long time. I, I got into computers. Um, we had a couple around when I was a kid. We didn't have a Mac or like a real computer. Uh, we had an Apple IIc until I was about 10. And then we had a house fire. My mother bought a couple Macs. And then she wanted to learn HTML. And she couldn't figure it out. So she gave me the book. And I figured it out. And I taught her. And that's kind of where it began. Right. Although I, I was writing basic before that because I found a book by accident in the library when I was like seven. Um, well. And I got really into the web and design and making pages. I was so excited to make stuff and put it online. And um, through that, I became a self-taught designer and I learned, taught myself HTML and CSS. And then um, design freelancing in like a small suburb when you're a teenager is horrible. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, very much make my logo bigger. Can you make it spin, et cetera, that kind of thing. Where, whereabouts in the world were you doing that? Uh, suburban Maryland, n north of Baltimore City. Um, and so I wanted to learn to program and I had a very, very, very hard time with the books because they, they, were, they left so much out 
So I eventually forced uh, a friend to teach me programming and I started with PHP and I got really into database design and this is pretty much snowballed from there. So now I, I kind of do everything. I'm self-taught. Um, I technically dropped out of high school to do homeschooling, but I pretty much let that on myself. So um, not so, so great you, with the... <laughs> go ahead. So you did all this when you were in high school, This, you know, all the, all the learning you're talking about. This mostly happened when you were still a teenager? Yeah, I, I just, because I, I left high school at uh, 14 and change to do homeschooling, mm -hmm. I devoted most of my time to design and programming and, and just reading all sorts of things and writing. In, in your mom, no, so it was more like a, what they call uh, unschooling versus homeschooling. So it wasn't like exactly. your mom was like, here, this is the curriculum we're following that I got off the web. I got these books and we're going to sit down and this would be like a little schoolroom of one kid. It's like, your, did exactly. your mom just sort of give you free reign to say, hey, you know, I, you need to be checking out these other things, but just you need to be reading some literature and some history and doing some science. But, you know, you kind of pick your own path. Was that kind of yeah, what happened? Yeah, it was, it was very much unschooling. Um, I would have to admit that I kind of emotionally blackmailed her into letting me do it. <laughs> it worked out. You know, my parents were, were sure I was going to work at 7-Eleven, you know. Obviously, right. <laughs> Yeah, you talk about being risk-averse. Parents are very risk-averse when it comes to their kids. Or, I, mean, I, I completely under, understand. But, I mean, when you look at the risk, you can't just look at the absolute risk, but the person who's doing it. So, sure. like, the risk for any other kid would have been much higher compared to me because I was such a nerd to start with. <laughs> Well, right. let me ask you one question about this. You know, um, the, the stereotype is that, you know, women and girls aren't all that interested in writing code very often. And um, what's your perspective on that? I and mean, we've talked to a few, we've had a few on our show and who, who, who found a, a love for um, building things and writing code at an early age. And I'd just be it's just curious what your perspective is on that. So. You just opened up a can of worms. <laughs> I'm sure I did, but you know everybody's you know people are thinking it, so I just I'm the one who asks. Yeah, stuff. no, no, no. I, I love to, I love to talk about this, or rather, to be invited to talk about it. Um, right. I'm kind of a contrarian. Be, so be gentle with him. I will be gentle. <laughs> I think that the whole women in tech discussion is a whole. How can I say this without being obscene? <laughs> a waste of time. Because people, I don't think anyone has actually realized what the real barriers are. For starters, most women don't want to spend their days over a computer in a cubicle all day. You know, it's like the movie that best depicts our industry is office space. Right. Why would anyone want that? That's the reality for the vast majority of people who program for a living. The people you interview and the people who run podcasts like you, they're exceptions. You know, and, and there are other industries where, like, the default position is much better. Um, and especially lots of women go into this, the hard sciences like biotech. But bio, in biotech, you know, you certainly have to be as smart and as technical, but you don't have to worry that some 16-year-old who sleeps in his mom's basement, or rather doesn't sleep at all, is going to, like, come in and take your job. Like, um, there's a barrier there. You have a better career security. You theoretically have better working conditions, not because the guys are all sexist pigs, but because it's a more valued industry. The vast majority of programming jobs are inside big corporations where programming is not the main thing. So they're treated like glorified typists, and they're given tools that don't help them, but theoretically prevent them from screwing up as much as they could, like Java and right. all this stuff. So... I completely understand why women wouldn't want to be in a programming job because they pretty much all suck for the most part, uh, unless right. you're really the top of your field or, or very good at marketing yourself. 
But what, what, isn't that just the same as, as men? I mean, why, why is that different for women than men when everything you just described? Um, men are more obsessive, I think, to be, to, to, to generalize, you know, I'm into all these <laughs> hobbies that guys are into and that right. women are rarely into. Like it's only lately that women have really gotten into photography, you know, um, I was a photo nerd when it was still uncool and I went to the camera shop and it was all these middle-aged guys really confused by this like 14 year old girl was wandering in with buckets of cash and trying to like buy lenses and stuff. And by buckets of cash, I mean, because it was like in ones and fives. <laughs> so, so, so Jason, what my, I, th- I think that we could like this, it really is. I mean, as Amy says, it's a can of worms and I'm thinking that that's not necessarily going to be the most valuable thing that we could do for our listeners. Like Amy has huge amounts of, um, business knowledge and we need to get that out of her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, we'll this, get to so. that. I, I just thought, I just, you know, I think it's interesting to get a little more insight into, you know, what, what got her moving in the direction that she's well, moved in. Right? Let me add one more thing then and sure. to make you move on. Um, the other thing I think that keeps out women also keeps out artists and musicians and people from soft sciences and anthropologists and linguists is that the, the, the tools and the learning materials are unfriendly. They're um, most programming books. I know people who seem like they've been born to understand programming books. They can pick them up and know nothing and they can understand everything. And I'm not that way. I'm a very visual person. I was like, this is Latin, but I could probably understand Latin much better. Um, And no one, no one smooths the way for people who think differently. When I learned to program, um, I had to draw out my for loops every time because I just couldn't get them. You know, I'm a great developer now. But I had to draw out my for loops every time I wrote my for loops because I, I just couldn't get what was going on in my head. I, I had a hard time like building the interpreter in my head. I don't know whether this is exactly the same experience, but I know that I couldn't do any kind of sensible arithmetic work or, or even reading or anything until I hit the age of 18. Like for some reason, my brain before I turned 18 was just pretty useless. That's really interesting. <laughs> so I don't know whether that fits. Because Justin, you dropped out of school at, at, how, at what age? Like 16. I mean, I, I was so bad at school. I mean, literally, I just, I flunked everything. Like, I was so bad. Right. That, well, obviously, you hit 18 and, you're, and you're, you suddenly became able to do that stuff. That's really interesting. I hit 18 and then all of a sudden I could, I could read and I literally read so much. I mean, I was reading like a book every few days kind of thing for a year. I, I think that just a lot of formal education in just in general is like geared badly towards maximizing people's potential. And it's just... I think education is really like the biggest thing in any industry that there's just not good enough education. It just, because we all have different use cases, don't we? Really? Right? Absolutely. The way that we need to learn. Yeah. Well, you figure, I mean, school is meant to maximize, you know, getting the meat, the meat of the curve up, uh, you know, up the curve as much as possible. You know, it's like, how can we get 90% of the people educated at a, at a certain basic level and there are going to yeah. be a lot of special cases or an edge cases people at the top people at the bottom who are not going to get nearly what they need but you know it's the best you can do with a certain amount of resources but well so okay so then you started freelancing and because the reason i'm get, I getting i want to talk about this is it sounded like at one point you hit rock bottom based on freelancing and you kind of pulled yourself out and that's that's kind of what i'd like to you know talk about the freelancing first you mean the whole six month thing where <laughs> I, I got uh, scammed out of two months worth work, well, three months worth of money. And then um, my ex-boyfriend stole my car and then I got mono and couldn't work, couldn't pay my rent, that particular rock bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So set us up, set us up the story. What happened? 
Because people often hit rock bottom before they yeah. have an epiphany, and they said, "All right, I'm going to get my act together, and I'm going to I'm going to rearchitect my life." So let's. That's let's... called the dark night of the soul, Jason. I like oh, it. It was a okay. very long dark night. It was okay. like six months long. <laughs> so okay. um, I had moved out of my my mother's house when I was a teenager with my boyfriend at the time, who was older than me, um, and I think because I was kind of damaged, <laughs> I ended up really mooching off him and he got sick of it eventually and kicked me out and that was the correct thing to do and that really helped me and that like was a crisis and then I picked myself up dusted myself off and tried to figure out how to make enough money freelancing I could actually pay for myself completely live on my own um and well I found this client who was doing like a work to hire thing so um well but it turned out that he was like this really con man like he was an actual honest to god con man not like just somebody who, who conned me specifically but like a con man and the thing is i researched him i thought this deal sounds really good i'm going to double check what he said and he was listed on novell's website like he said he would because he was a novell partner and all this other stuff like they did a little case study on him and everything but it turns out he was just this con man who lived in his parents home and probably never wore pants and got he got local news and all this other stuff it's just unbelievable how many people he conned and he said he conned me out of a lot of work because um well it was all a lie even though like it seemed to check out i had a lawyer look at the contracts and everything so i had worked my ass off for three months and finally realized it was a complete con and what so were I, you what were you doing for him specifically what was the arrangement um, i and a couple friends were building um an e-commerce site to sell uh racks for hosting okay and uh, he said that once we had finished that, that we would, he would hire us and that we were billing incrementally as well during that time okay. and everything. I, it seemed totally on the up and up to the whole thing where <laughs> we didn't get paid. So um, did you give him, the, did he end up with any source code or a working product? I honestly don't know. Like at the end of that, uh, he definitely didn't have a working product um, and certainly right. nothing ever came of it because he's a con man as opposed to he... I don't think it ever went anywhere. Right, right. Um, but after that, at that point, when, when I realized that it was just a con, and I talked to my, my friend and my other friend who were also working for him, our main concern was shoring up our problems rather than trying to track him down because we found out that he had no money. So we just ignored him from then on. Yeah, right. Um, and so I ended up giving a lot of my money to one of my friends who had kids. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm by myself and he has way bigger problems than me. Um, only then I was, I was so stressed out cause we'd been working really long weeks and, um, I got sick. I got mono. <laughs> I was sick for months and no one knew it was wrong with me. I don't know why none of the doctors figured out that it was mono. Well, how and, old were uh, you at this time? Um, 19. Okay. okay. And, the, and did, did you move back in with your mom or something? Is that, or are you living no. by yourself? No, I was living by myself. Okay. Um, it wasn't an option to live back, move back with one of my parents. Okay. And um, what's mono? I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit sick, but you don't know what, what mono is, Justin? No, no, I don't. Come I don't think on. they have it in Europe. My, my husband didn't know what it was either. It's called mononucleosis. It's also called the kissing disease. Uh, it's a type of virus that is common uh, to get from. Like, I think I drank from someone's glass and got it. Uh, it's really common in college populations. It's like horrible. Some people don't get really sick. Some people get like the flu. What do they call like, it in the UK? Or in Europe? I don't think they have it. Oh, okay. Oh, really? No, I don't think yeah. it's over there. 
Huh. So yeah, Justin. You know, when you, occasionally, I, you know, you you would know someone who get who would get mono, and they would be gone out of school for like three or six months. I mean, just disappear. Sometimes they couldn't. They they would have to repeat the grade. It was it's it's such a long time yeah. to recover. Yeah. It's huh. it'll totally knock you out. Like I I was so sick that I I didn't have the energy to stand up and brush my hair. Like that would wipe me out. I, I'm granted I had a lot of hair, but. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get out of it? I mean, what, what, what did you do? Well, I slowly got better. Um, oh, and one of my clients that I'd had when I got too sick to work threatened to sue me. <laughs> oh, like, nice. Just wow. add, oh, and my ex-boyfriend, who was up to that point, like a re- pretty reasonable guy, stole my car. Okay. So what did he, did he rationalize it that you owed him money because you were mooching off him and he just said, well, yes. I'm just going to take the car kind of thing? That's exactly what happened. Nice. Okay, so this is, this is rock bottom. And I think, yes. I think that I'm, I'm just about to slip my wrist. So, <laughs> so how, did you, how did you get out of this? Well, a friend, I was going to be um, evicted. And a friend, well, the landlord hadn't actually told me I was going to be evicted, but I was about to be unable to make my rent. And so a friend, another friend of mine actually just gave me the money to pay my rent I was, I was like we weren't even buddies and he just did that for me and i think that was like a real light you know that he just helped me like that right and so um as i was starting to get a bit better i mean granted this is the worst stress i think i've ever been under um i was talking to one of my long-term clients that i'd worked for on and off and i asked him if he would hire me like as a job and uh he said he would. So that helped. And I worked there for three months. It just wasn't a good fit. So I had been asking around and got myself another job uh, where, where I stayed for a year at a company in Maryland doing, um, uh, doing interface design and PHP development and eventually Rails development, like leading a project. And so what I did was, yeah, I, I had borrowed a car. Um, when I got the job, I'd been there for a few weeks and I took pay stubs and all, and I bought a car um, and I just paid it off. I mean, I had, I had built up about $10,000 worth of debt wow. from paying for stuff with my credit cards because I didn't have any money for months. And I just, you know, scrambled back and I'd like to know that every job I've ever got asked for as opposed to applied for or waited for an invitation. I think that's important and people don't think about that. I, I basically manufacture jobs <laughs> by right. requesting them. And, um, and then I worked at LimeWire for just over a year, working on a web-based product, which has never seen the light of day. And I just got so frustrated with none of my projects shipping. Like that happened at all three of my jobs. The projects just never shipped. Right. Now they never shipped because of technical reasons or for business reasons or, or what? Because, because people who were in charge couldn't stop screwing with them. You know, right. they had the exact opposite philosophy of, of minimum viable product. Like I had actually, uh, created this whole interface for this enterprise mail transfer agent, AKA mail server. Mm-hmm. Great interface. I researched it. I designed everything in a way that made so much more sense than what they had, which was automatically generated forms. <laughs> right. And because it didn't do one thing, which had not been in the list of requirements, uh, instead of letting me update it, they stripped it all out. It went back to what the, where it was. Jeez. It's like, I could have fixed it, but they were like, no, <laughs> ripped it away. I was like, what? That doesn't make sense. And then at LimeWire, my, our boss keep, kept changing the direction of the product like every three weeks. And I, sh- I should have just ignored him. <laughs> so, so really, your, your frustration with, with um, these products not seeing the light yep. of day is what started you as, a, as, this, as an entrepreneur with lots of products online. That's exactly right. Um, I had been thinking that looking at Basecamp, I, I saw when Basecamp launched as beta on a private designer's forum called Yay Hooray. So 
um that's also where threadless came out of so i was like i was there <laughs> not right. involved in any way but sort of watching as these businesses launched and so i thought i could do that but i didn't i didn't for years and years um but when i when i quit limewire i knew that i had to create something other than like consulting income because it doesn't that's not the way to like independence or wealth is you know to be it doesn't scale right doesn't because you're swapping hours for money exactly and if you're not working, you're never earning money. So I didn't want to go back to the mono thing where I nearly got sued and went totally broke. Well, you know, one thing you, you make a great, uh, you describe this in a really good way. You talk about wealth. Um, and, and one of your posts, you said the real difference between the truly rich and the rest of us um, is that the truly rich have assets that earn money for them. What makes your own, when you make your own products, you build your own assets. So right. I guess you had that in mind, right? Which is, you know, I need that's, to make something that's going to earn money. It's very rich dad, poor dad, actually. That is, exactly. Is oh, I was actually going to point that out. Yeah. Okay. No, I've, I've never read those books, but uh, that's, that's awesome. Now I feel smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's like a concept I've been developing over time. Like, I tend to have these gut feelings and then research them and, like, what I should do. And then later on, the, like, the higher level philosophy kind of emerges to me. Um, so that the true wealth thing, I knew on some lower level that I needed to build these assets. I knew that hourly rates didn't scale and no matter how much you charge, if you stop working, it doesn't do anything for you. Um, but I hadn't come to the, the concept of true wealth until maybe the last year. Um, okay, so you're, so let's, let's get a time frame for this. So you're what, in your early 20s, you're working at LimeWire, you're thinking, I gotta, I gotta move to the next step. What happened? I quit uh, LimeWire in August of 2007, and I formed a, a high-end consulting agency with my friend John Athade. We did interaction design consulting um, for some pretty big companies like Bear Stearns. <laughs> again, right. another another project that never saw the light of day. <laughs> right. Yet again. Um, but... And, and using the tools that we use to run our consulting business really is what gave me the irritation level I needed to get off my ass and design Freckle. So what was the very first uh, product that you designed and launched to the world and the world saw that was yours rather than anyone else's? That would actually be Twistory, which isn't really a product, but a fun thing that I made um, with my husband. Tell us about that. So Twistory.com, it's T-W-I-S-T-O-R-I.com, is an emotion stream of tweets, which is, uh, they're anonymous tweets and they flow by. And the emotions are like the most primal emotions. We look for phrases that contain, I hate, I love, I think, I wish, I feel, and I believe. And we just pipe them out like in mass by, by this very nicely animated JavaScript based interface. So was any part of building that kind of like a your personal test case for seeing if you could do this and you wanted to kind of prove something to yourself or? Again, it was sort of like, um, I didn't think of it that way at the time, but I was waiting for, I was hoping that Twitter would hire me to do some of this data mining and they, they just didn't get their stuff together to do it because they were otherwise occupied. And I was like, well, why am I waiting? I'll just mm -hmm. do it myself. And then I was talking about it with Thomas and Thomas decided to help me build it. And so we just built it and shipped it in a day and it, it got like so much traffic. People loved it. And that was, that was, yeah, that was a moment. I was like, whoa, I knew on some level that I could just do the stuff, but this was what really changed my whole attitude. Like I went from someone who, who thought about building project management software for like six years before doing anything to someone who, um, 
Like I sketched out the interface for Freckle and we started building it within a couple months. Jason, this is what you call the existence proof, right? She she needed the, the existence proof before she could really go for it. Yeah, well, a lot of us see, once you, once you see someone who's not so different from yourself, just do something that you didn't necessarily think was doable or you didn't even really think about. It. You're like, wow, okay, I just, I just saw this person do it. I saw kind of how they did it. I can do that, right? There's nothing special about them. And that could be a very big deal because prior to that, you, you might just say, well, I, I don't know, there were probably a lot of things involved or they had advantages or resources that I don't have. But yeah, existence proof is a big deal, I think. I've often thought about that concept. And I try to like be that person for people, um, but I'd never heard it, it phrased so succinctly, existence proof. I really like that, just saying. Jason, is that another one of your inventions? No, no, I wish. No. <laughs> I wish I invented the existence proof. I mean, you know, it's like it's like the four minute mile, right? Once one guy breaks it, people think it's impossible, and then all of a sudden everyone's right. breaking left and right, or the ten second, hundred meter dash, or any number of things, right? It's just you know, it, it opens up everybody's mind, like, oh man, you know, when you break like Ajax using the XHR po uh, component to do like Ajax and going back into the server without refreshing the page was something that could have that was possible long before the Ajax uh, term was coined and before people started talking about it uh, using the term Ajax. Um, and then uh, I think Google Google did it with uh, Google Maps and Gmail, but I don't even think they use XHR. I think they use hidden iframes. But then all of a sudden everyone started seeing it's possible, right? Did they use XHR or they got hidden iframes? Do you know? No, they use iframes. They, they, yeah. they did use iframes. I don't know if they That's, do anymore. Yeah, that's what I think they started. So, but nevertheless, people saw it and everyone's like, you know, I, okay, so that's possible. Oh, that, if that's possible, then I can do X, Y, and Z. And that's when, you know, I, that's when I did Prezo because I, I saw what was possible. I saw, you know, with Gmail. But anyway, yeah, the existence proof is a well-known sort of concept. Cool. But uh, Anyway, sorry, sorry, we, we interrupted. Um, so you, you started to build Freckle or you started to think about building Freckle? Yes, I... Um my partner at the time, my uh, consulting partner, John, and I had used every time tracking tool possible. And it just irritated the crap out of me because every time I used them, it was a, it was a fight. You know, if I wanted to log time because I, I talked to someone and I wanted to track um, new potential client, I talked to them for half an hour. I wanted to track that. It was so much work. I had to create a new client. I had to create a new project. Couldn't just log time to the client. And then I wanted to track 30 minutes for the phone call. And there was no way to say, well, this is overhead, you know, and this may never go anywhere, which is so much work. And um, it drove me crazy. And every time I used the tool, I was like, why aren't you better? And <laughs> so I, I kind of compiled a mental hate list of like horrible things that no time tracking tool should do. And one day, I, um, you're noticing a theme here. I had a horrible hangover. <laughs> <laughs> I don't drink that often, but when I do, good things happen. <laughs> right. Um, you should drink more. I sh apparently should. Um, I had a horrible hangover after my husband's 30th birthday party. Um, don't let your Iranian friends sneak into party with like vodka under their coat. Just going to say that, put that out there now. <laughs> I couldn't look at the sun or like read or look at a screen. And I didn't want to just lie around moaning. So I wrote down all my ideas that I'd had in my head and I sketched the first interface for Freckle. Oh, by the way, I think that is the, one of the primary recipes for coming up with a product idea is compiling your hate list. So true. I, I teach my students in my launch class, I call it mining the pain. I tell them mine the pain right. because wherever there are products, there's lots of pain. Just dig deep and 
dig it all out. So that's the la- the launch glass that you describe. Does that exist or does that yeah, not exist? It exists. That's, that, that's what I meant at the beginning when I said the masterclass. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'm ma- sorry. I, I'm, I didn't understand. Don't worry. But I think, Justin, I think you're jumping ahead. I, I, let's, let's, let's go chrono- chronologically here. We kind okay. of started chronologically. So let's just kind of go chronologically. And we'll get- all right. All right. Calm down. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, we launched Freckle about six or seven months after that hangover day. Okay. And uh, so I, I convinced a couple of our friends who also did Rails consulting in, in Vienna to help us build it for um, part ownership or rather profit sharing. I kept right. ownership of everything, but profit sharing was the deal. And uh, we built that over about three, three and a half months, um, during which time I also moved internationally and got married. Don't recommend doing those things all at once, by the way. Nearly killed me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, well, hold on. Hold on. Just a couple things, just think things you said there. Okay, first of all, uh, the profit sharing versus equity, right? Because a lot of people think you, if you start a company and you're not going to work by yourself, you either have to you know, outsource or hire contractors or you have to do it all yourself. But you came with kind of a mid, middle way, which yes. is profit sharing. So could you explain that to us and why you did it that way? And how you got them to agree to it. Right. So... I think they knew I was, to start with your uh, last in, first out, uh, they agreed because I think that they saw the, the real value in the product and that they knew that I was like a go-getter and that I would handle all the marketing and, and all that stuff and that I was more than capable of doing that. Um, and also, I'm just very persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> I know how to appeal to people's self-interest. In this case, it was definitely in their interest. It was a good deal. Um, and... So they could make money and, and they could be relieved of a lot of that. They could make more money than they would yeah. contracting, but they relieved a lot of the headache of like, you this you own part of this, so you got to go out and do a bunch of things that you probably don't want to do to make it a success. So you exactly. said, you don't have to worry about that. Exactly. But but they don't, they, so they don't own part of it, right? They don't own, no. Yeah. It, was, yeah. it was a profit sharing agreement. And actually, jump ahead of myself, uh, we later parted away with, ways with them in a, an amicable way because they didn't want to devote that much time to it. So we, we bought them out, basically. Okay. Um, and the reason that I wanted to retain ownership was because of control. And I wanted to be sure that no matter what, the product was mine and therefore I would be able to make the final decisions and that um, there wouldn't be lots of squabbling and, and fighting and that we would able to be able to do something like buy them out. Um, Interesting. We didn't want to have any kind of complex ownership structures. So what does, what, what does it look like, that kind of a deal? I mean, is it basically you, you guys will get X percent of the profits for a, an unending amount of time as long as you're working on it kind of thing, and then yes. there will be a point where I may buy you out, and then that's for like, I don't know, a couple of years worth of profit kind of thing? We um, did not... This is a mistake, by the way. We did not make a formal contract. It was right. a verbal agreement. The We should have formalized it, but it didn't end up being a problem because we had all agreed at the outset that we would put our friendship above the product, if that makes sense. Yeah. We're not talking about millions and millions of dollars here anyway. So not everyone agrees that their friendship's more valuable than that, but I would. Um, <laughs> and that, yeah, they would get the profit sharing per, and as long as they were working on it. And what we didn't have was a clause, what defines the work that makes it worth the How profit sharing. Yeah. Exactly. Or, or like availability, for example. I'm not even sure yeah. time would be the best way to quantify it. I still haven't figured out the best way to quantify that kind of thing. But um, there should have been in a contract that we didn't have <laughs> a point at which, you know, it's like um, shit or get off the pot kind of thing. Right. So that's the shit or get off the pot clause. 
Yes, <laughs> really. There should be one in every contract. Right. And, and so when they, they eventually got so busy with the other work and they, I guess they weren't seeing a payoff that was fast enough with Freckle or, or they didn't like working on it. I mean, I tried very hard to get them re-engaged. Like we, we did stuff that they wanted to do so they would feel more excited and all that stuff, but it just didn't work. So we bought them out for an additional six months of profit sharing because uh, they, they weren't working on it at that point at all. Uh, so that we, makes sense. We were giving them yeah. money for nothing. So that was the deal that we negotiated. And so okay. that was amicable. Oh couple clarifications here. When you say we, is this you and your husband? Yes, my husband, Thomas. And Thomas, and it's Thomas uh, Fuchs, is that right? Did I pronounce his last name? I say rhymes with books, so it's Fuchs. Fuchs. And he is the original author of Scriptaculous, the JavaScript uh, yes. library, right? And he was a core committer to Rails. Uh, he contributed to prototype.js very heavily and some other stuff. So he's kind of a nobody. I get it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's way more famous than I am. Well, I don't know. You're making quite a name for yourself, Amy. I think he's eclipsed. He, pretty soon he's going to be known as Mr. Amy Hoy. So <laughs> That would be hilarious. <laughs> I think we should. I think that's it, Mr. Amy Hoy. Too bad for you, Thomas. You better get off your butt. Amy's running the show now. <laughs> but um, so, no, is he Austrian? Is that because you moved to Austria? That's one thing yes. I want to ask you about. So you guys... I guess met in the state somehow, and then started dating, and then moved to Austria. What what happened there? That's we it. met in Canada. <laughs> okay. <laughs> at a at a rail at the first Rails conference. Okay. Um, and and uh, yeah, we didn't start dating or anything until over a year later. It was just it was kind of interesting. Um, yeah. And yes, he's Austrian, and yes, that's why I moved to Austria. Although, okay. um, and I like Austria in very many ways, but it's driving me crazy socially. So right. we're looking at moving back to the U.S. And why is it driving you crazy socially? The language barrier? No, no. All the people that I want to know speak English, and they don't mind, seem to mind speaking English to me. But people there, for the most part, and of course there are exceptions, but most people have the same friends that they've had since in high school, and they're not interested in new friends or new restaurants or I see. new things in general. And so I'm used to people wanting to be my friend. I'm I'm quite a friendly person, you know. I'm right. a good friend. I and I, you know, I put right. on, put on so a conference. Their, gr their groups are already set up, basically. They're already set up, and um, they're they exclude people. And after a while, that really can can weigh on you. Especially, I'm I'm used to it being fairly easy to to make friends, even in new places. Um, Americans are much more open, even though it's, maybe their devotion doesn't go as deep. There are always trade-offs, but so if if you like invite somebody, if you meet somebody and you say, "Hey, let's go grab some coffee or grab grab meal together," I mean, what happens? Do they just refuse? Are they just not really interested, or they they'll accept it and then it's like they don't say, "Hey, yeah, let's go. We'll do this again sometime." I mean, how do, when it doesn't, how does it not happen? You know. Well, I went to a. This is my sort of seminal story. I went to the user interface Stammtisch, which is like a meetup. And I introduced myself and I said, you know, you don't have to speak in English. Obviously, it would be really great if you could. I know that I can contribute to this and, you know, right. I'd love to, to meet you and all that stuff. And one guy was like, yeah, let's talk in English. And all the other ones like acted like I wasn't there at all. Like they didn't just re refuse to speak in English, which would be fine, but they actually like wouldn't respond to me when I spoke to them. That there are many lovely Austrian people. <laughs> I do have Austrian friends. It's but 
even my Austrian friends complain that people are so um, negative about new ideas or new products. It weighs on them too. The zeitgeist over there, right? Well, it really it sounds is. Like it's, it sounds like it's kind of European because I have a number of European friends and they say kind of the same thing. It's like, you know, a friend of mine who's living in Sweden, if you go to Sweden, he's like, you know, it's people aren't going to just invite you into their home for over for dinner and stuff. It's, it's kind of, it, 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 this is a barrier there. It takes a little while. Well, Moving know. over from the UK to America, it was it's the opposite way. It's like, I mean, it, it's very difficult. I, I felt very distrustful of people because they just seem too nice. It's just, I'm just not used to people being that nice, right? So in the UK, everyone's grumpy and difficult and, and horrible. And that's what I expect. And those are the kind of interactions I look for. <laughs> and over here, I go into a shop and I'm like, hello. And they're like, how are you doing, sir? Really nice to see you. And I'm like, yeah, what the hell's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can, yeah, I can understand that, especially like in commercial settings. But um, like there's a, there's a restaurant around the corner from our apartment in Vienna and it's a cafe and we've gone there at least 30 or 40 times and we've talked to them and they act like they don't know us every time. It's not that they're mean. It's that's just the way that people are expected to act. So it's, uh, and pe- if you laugh in a restaurant, people will stare. Like, what are oh, you that's doing? That's hilarious. Okay. That, no, it's not, not, not even that bad in London. I mean, like, <laughs> I think London, like from my perspective as a visitor, is sort of between European, sort of very reserved, and American, like totally not reserved. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, um, so you moved to Austria with uh, Thomas, and you're over there, and I guess it makes it even easier to want to focus on launching your products because unless you're already fluent in German, it might be a little hard to get a job working over there, right? I mean, is it sort of does that add to your reasoning for? You know, making your own way, so to speak. Freckle's already m- making her living by now, I think. That's my guess. Yeah, we could live off Freckle. Um, but instead, we're, we're rolling pretty much all of the Freckle money into improving Freckle and building other products. So we don't live off that money, but we could if, if worse came to worst. Um, but there's no way I would ever take a job again, ever. Like, right. okay, if it's, I'm going to be homeless, sure. But I don't think that would happen now that the way I set myself up. And, um, Maybe yeah, having a lack of a social life makes it easier to focus on products, but it, it sure also easy make, makes it much easier to burn out. So sure, there are upsides and downsides to that. So Freckle, now after Freckle, you you got Freckle up, and I guess you were starting to. Well, actually, first thing I like to back up, just talk a little bit about Freckle. How did sure. you launch it and get customers? I mean, because uh, there's a, there's a lot of people who work on some little their app, right, and they release it, and they get like nine people using it, and then it's sort of dead. So what was your strategy for getting it out into the community and getting people using it, picking up customers? Well, the first thing I would say is that I built something that people obviously pay for, not necessarily my product, but other products like Harvest and all those companies make good money and they have lots of employees. Um, So I knew that people would pay for a time tracking tool. And the question is, would they pay for mine? So I tried to be, in essence, the opposite of all those other tools. And we talked about launching a product on our blogs and we did little sneak peeks and we talked about why we were launching it and we funneled people towards a mailing list or uh, an announce list so that we often would pimp that like in the few months leading up to launch and um from that list we had about a thousand people on that list and i think about half of them signed up not all for paying accounts but accounts period so that gave us a nice initial boost to get to like 13 to 1500 dollars a month right out of the get-go right and i would say that for the most part we botched the marketing but that particular launch i think we did right so you say you botched the marketing how in what way 
we had quite good success the first few months and then um, with, with the launch and just the momentum. But then we, and by we, I mean, I just didn't put enough emphasis on keeping it, it going, the marketing okay. and the word of mouth machine. Oh, so, so after launch, you kind of got a little uh, lazy on the marketing. Is that yeah, right? You just we were focusing on the product? We were working on the product. Yeah. So that was a mistake. I feel like we could be like an order of magnitude more money right now if I had never let that slack. But there were, there were periods. Fa- hmm? I'm so, I was going to say, does that sound familiar to you, Justin? Yeah, it sounds ridiculously familiar. It's exactly <laughs> the same. I mean, that's like that. I guess the last three things that I've launched have, have fallen into that category and I've never been able to get out of it. And I, I have a tool called Plugio, which is basically, um, I guess it's a Twitter for business tool. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm like a year into it and it's, it's stayed with those ini- initial customers. So I've, I've had those initial customers, like 100 customers using it. They all absolutely love it for like six months. And then I never really did any more with it. So yeah. now I'm at the stage of going back into it and... and yeah, taking that for been there, done that, and you're sitting on a gold mine. If you have that many customers who stuck with you that long, they're doing something right. So that's that's what I keep telling myself. Like we have so many happy customers. Um, it's just a matter of well, how can we get more happy customers? Because if we can get people to try Freckle, they're going to love it. Of the people who sign up, even for the free accounts, like ten to thirty percent each month upgrade. That's huge. Yeah, so oh, it's just about increasing it. But that, but the number of people who actually sign up is very small. So, we're I'm I'm trying to widen the net right now. As you well. need to get it's it's getting people to the page that's the issue, right? Getting the right people to the right page. I th- I think that's the big issue. I also don't think our sales site does a very good job, and so we're going to revamp that as one of our top priorities for the new year. But but yeah, just the traffic that's a big thing, and then making sure that they understand how it helps them. That's the second yeah. big thing. Right. So you so you you are following the premium model, right? Is that is that what I understand? Freemium yes. she has. Right, premium, it's, right. Okay. Free, the free account is extremely limited. So I don't even okay. I wouldn't even say that we use freemium because it, it's so limited that it's almost useless to anyone who makes money. Right. Um, but, okay. So technically it's freemium, but not that many people actually use the free account for anything other than tracking like personal uh, okay, so it's not one of these situations where 95% of your clients are freemium and it's just creating huge bandwidth and hosting and support costs and there's just a small fraction of paying. You, 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 you architected your um, or segmented your, uh, your accounts so that that, wasn't the, uh, that, that that didn't happen. So. Well, according to my dashboard, 88% of all open accounts are free accounts, but the okay. vast majority are inactive. So I would say maybe a thousand of those are actually used and the rest were drive, drive-bys. Like they just wanted to look at it. They weren't really ever going to sign up right, um, I see. for a paid okay. account. Do you, do you recontact them via email? Do you, and do you have like opt-in email list for when they sign up? We don't have an opt-in list and we have just started reaching out to our customers, making it very easy to unsubscribe. Um, and I know that's absolutely going to be a goldmine once we get off our butts and arrange it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, because we've talked to some entrepreneurs. I, Emmer, uh, Isaac and Arno from Central Desktop talked a lot about how they automated and they had sort of a, you know, after three days, they get an email sent out. And after 10 days and after a couple of weeks, I would, you know, trying to push, you know, there are people who are on the fence to uh, signing up to, the, to an account. And that, that, that paid off for them big time. I, I, I remember them saying. That's, yeah, that's exactly what we're going to set up, especially because a lot of um, our accounts, the free accounts, they came in once and looked and may have left. And maybe it was because we didn't have a certain feature. And we've added a lot of functionality. So we want to let them know that there's all this new stuff. 
And I think right. much anytime you email a group of people, you'll make sales. You just have to be sure that you're doing it in a, you know, an ethically responsible way. Are sure. you more interested in making money through the info products and the training stuff? Is that the kind of future direction of AI? Justin, you keep it- jumping the you keep <laughs> jumping ahead. We're going there. I'm just asking what I'm curious and interested about. That. What's wrong with that? <laughs> let's get there. Justin is impatient. <laughs> yeah. Impatient. He's excited. All right, so let's move on down the trail. Let's get there. So I want to ask, okay, you're doing Freckle, and then because there's two other things we've mentioned that you've done, which is hosting and organizing conferences and selling info products or ebooks and stuff. So what happened after Freckle? You're making some success. You got Freckle up and you're like, you know, I have an idea. You know, what came next, info products or the conferences? So there's just one conference uh, and it was completely nonprofit endeavor. Um, I wanted to host it in Vienna to show people like what I do, I didn't talk at the conference, but to, to bring other business people who are doing this creating products and charging for it thing to give them role models, right? Existence proof. Okay. Um, right. It kind of like people liked it, but there was no after effects at all. I don't think none. You still didn't make any friends. I still didn't make a single friend That's amazing. <laughs> from the conference. I know um, no one, no one wants to have me out for coffee, even though I've volunteered to tell them stuff. <laughs> it's like for free. It's like, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Justin and I will fly. We're, Justin, let's fly over to Austria and take her out to coffee. No, I was going to say, look, no, I wouldn't do that. But if she goes back to America, then, you know, I'd, I'd have a coffee with her. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Philadelphia right now. <laughs> okay, well, if you come to LA. <laughs> I'm sure I will eventually. But thank you. <laughs> Vice versa, if you visit me. Um, so, isn't it a sad story? Oh. Um, so, the other two products really are. Well, there's the JavaScript ebook, right? That's a pure info product. There are our, our live tech class. So that's what you're thinking with the master class. The master class is a day long or two half days long of pure JavaScript training, like JavaScript, the language, which people love. And that makes us quite a bit of money. Like every time we do it, several, quite a few thousand dollars. But of course, it takes a lot of time to do it. And a lot of energy to get up and teach for six hours, I can tell you, and answer tech questions. Well, and there's you say, a couple uh, you other say, workshops. So you make, more, you, I mean, you make more than a few thousand dollars then, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be worth your time. Well, um, each class probably goes, like the full, time, the full day classes are probably about eight or nine thousand dollars total each time we okay. put it on. And then we have a couple half day classes as well, which are less. Oh, and, and and is that your eight or nine thousand you profit, or eight or nine eight or nine thousand gross, and then you make That's something? That's gross. Okay, okay, all right. So it doesn't sound like it's a huge money maker for you. It sounds like it just makes something. No, but if you if we do one or two of those a month, I mean, we have plenty of money to live off of. Ah, uh, okay. I thought this was like this once a year kind of thing. I'm like, well. Oh just, no, no. We were doing. Okay. We, there was time when we did three classes in a month. So, oh, okay. so that's kind of. What, what my model is basically, I'm trying to bankroll as much cash as possible as operating expenses while putting all the freckle money back into building products. I so see. I'm pushing a snowball down a hill. One of these days, it's going to get big enough to roll on its own. Um, right. And then there's my launch class, which is a long involved multi-month affair where I deliver lessons about like everything I've learned about launching products and including like how to come up with the product to start with and ensure someone will buy it and all that good stuff and impart that in a way that, that people really learn from it and then help them like grade homework and, you know, set them right when they've got the wrong idea and that kind of thing. And, um, that I sold 75 tickets to, 
at about 750 ahead. So uh, that's wow. going on right now. And so that's that's an ongoing thing. That's yeah. an ongoing thing. It's a lot. Of, that's a that's a lot of cash as well, right? So are you are you thinking that direction is more profitable than the direction of a freckle, or I mean, what are you? Thinking? Well, uh, it's halfway between consulting and a pure product because I have to be involved every step of the way. And I actually really enjoy teaching. It's still a strain though. So I think that the real future, of course, is anything that's subscription sort of automated because subscription income is amazing. So it's one thing to say, okay, well, I just got $50,000 for this class, but I have to be helping people for four months. So it's, while it's really good, income like if i do two classes a year that's a hundred thousand dollars a year income you know it's nothing to sneeze at although of course that's before expenses and before taxes uh, that's just more than enough to like get by on <laughs> um, right i have to hire help for this by the way to keep sure. it running um sure. but it's not scalable you know to make it the kind of product where i help people directly it couldn't scale any bigger than that i don't think well, it can if you move it to books and ebooks and, yes. and DVDs and videos and all that kind of thing. So, I, I mean, I have a blend. My, my product strategy is exactly that. I'm going to still do the big classes for at least a while and the like day long training courses for the JavaScript stuff. But I also want to create some more um, self serve products as well to fill in that gap. Of course, you can't charge as much for them, but you can do more volume and it's less effort after you create it. And so, I basically have a multi prong approach. I think subscription income is really really where it's going um but i wouldn't sneeze at the income from another digital product right so the the javascript uh, was this, it's called javascript performance is that the name of the ebook it's that javascript performance rocks okay and how long did it take you to write the book in the first place um i don't have the exact number so we I should have tracked the time. <laughs> um, you should have used your time tracking tool, right? I should have. I really should have. So we released the beta in January of 2008 or no, 2009. Sorry. And I think that there were probably like 100 hours or so put into that. Thomas had a lot of the research already done. And so it was a lot of, a lot of the time was me understanding the research and writing it or rewriting his notes in such a way that they were cohesive and that they explained things and it created some diagrams to hire an illustrator and some stuff like that. And then to finish it was really a drawn out process, but it didn't take that much time. It's just that we were kind of sick of it by then and uh, did not want to work on it. But when we did work on it, we, we wrapped it up pretty quickly. We added a lot of content. It doubled in size from the, when we started selling the beta book. How many pages is it? It's about 300 pages. Granted, they're, they're uh, fairly narrow width of right. the columns. And a lot of diagrams, I guess. But still, that sounds like a lot of content to create. I mean, it's not like it it's is a, a lot of content. Not like you took like three or four blog posts. And, and what do you sell it for? We, we sell the current final version with the Dom Monster uh, inspection tool for $39. Wow. And how many sales of that do you make, say, in a month now? Between $700 and $1,000 a month. It's, it's really going down, though, because the book is kind of old at this point. Uh, so, well, that's an interesting thing about the whole info product concept. So... It seems like one of the benefits of info products, so selling, meaning like videos, screencasts, ebooks, are that there's no maintenance. Right? Like once you sell it, it's not like you have customer support really. Yeah. <laughs> but the downside is that they age, whereas software as a service doesn't seem to age as much. It's, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? 
It's true. So a tech book like ours, ours is a very edge related tech book because it's about performance issues and maximizing performance and techniques and tools. So those age. But if I wrote a business, a book, a book about business basics, that wouldn't age. Granted, no one ever buys books on business basics. Um, they, they buy something that solves a problem. So some info products do age and, and some don't. You know, I think that's that's part of the thing. But it's really great to not have to do support on it. Absolutely. We, we did, of course, fix errors, but that's not quite the same. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, if you have a SaaS product, I mean, how much, for instance, for Freckle, I mean, how much of your time is spent um, responding to customer support issues? Very little. We actually get almost no support e- emails, really, in, that aren't about actual bugs. And in that case, the, issue, the time is not spent responding so much, but it's actually fixing. And that's usually not my area. Okay. So I would I would say we spend maybe two hours a week. Was there anything that you did um, to make that happen? For I, I only asked that because with Plugio, it was once I'd put videos that were always accessible help videos that basically stopped me from getting any more support requests. And I'm wondering if you went through anything like that. Not that we noticed. Now we have an FAQ system, and I actually don't have statistics on how often people use it. That's a good idea. I should check that out. Hmm. But our product is very easy to use and the the thing people have the most issue with is like the magical tagging and the people who get it get it really fast people who don't get it maybe don't get it even with our help and we're we're looking at phasing that out and making it more like twitter hashtags just for simplicity but um i think that overall people don't write us because they don't have problems that's right so you spend a lot of time with the user interface to make it so easy that yes. they can't screw up and everything's easily understandable. Is that why? Yes. And it's a pretty simple problem domain as well. Right. So, okay. The, the ebook, so are you, are, so what are your thoughts now on info products? It sounds like you're maybe even more excited about info products than you are about um, software. Are, are they just like two different things that you're interested in equally? What, what are your, I'm excited you about, about lots of different things. Okay. <laughs> now I'm temper. I'm excited about spreading the info product gospel. Okay. That's because I know that working with entrepreneurs, people who are, who are tech people, often developers or designers who are programmatically inclined, they think that they have to create this big giant thing to earn some money. Meanwhile, our ebook was a big step in liberating ourselves from client work because it brought in a fairly nice lump at the launch and then ongoing, it does provide some income. And then our workshops are more hands-on, but we could really live off them. No problem. Right. It would be easy to live off the workshops. We just don't want to. And if you, know, if you work a week, a month, really hard, and then don't have to work the other three weeks, then that's a pretty good living. <laughs> yeah, that, that's good living. Yeah. If you, hate, if you hate your work, you know, if you don't want to do more of it. Um, well, what makes work even more fun is that when you know you don't really have to do it, <laughs> Then it becomes fun. It's like, I think coding is an intrinsically fun thing for most people who write code. But when there's pressure and they have to go in every day, and then it becomes, it starts taking the fun out of it. And that goes with anything. I think you see people who become professional athletes. I mean, they love the game. They couldn't, they couldn't wait to play it all day long. But then when they become professional athletes, it becomes a bit of a grind because there's no choice in the matter. You have to get out. You have to do it. And I think the same things go with, with coding. I think it's true. It's also true with writing and, and what I do. It's, I think it's true with everything if you think that you have to. And for me, what I've learned is the moment I start telling myself I have to, I need to stop and think, think, well, no, I don't have to. I could totally let this business slide. It doesn't matter. 
I mean, there would be consequences, but I could make that choice, you know? And so then I try to reframe it in the idea of making it better or helping people as a a choice that I have. I don't actually have to do any of it. And in fact, for like six months, I completely neglected Freckle. It didn't grow, but it also didn't die. So that's exactly what I've done with Plugia. It's an option, you know? It's just an option that doesn't feel good, right? <laughs> That's right. And then what's, what's even stranger is then, then I've now I've started speaking to the customers who've been using this thing for six months and they're telling me how they couldn't even do their job without it. Like it's the most, it's just fantastic. And, and then that, that makes you feel really excited to help them more, right? That's right. <laughs> but it's, it's exactly it's, what I do. I read customer emails when I want to get motivated. Ah, okay. So have you, have you gone through the thing of, of calling up your customers and kind of talking, talking them through? And so, so to really get what they're getting out of it that you didn't expect? I haven't, but I'm working with a copywriter and, and marketing lady to, to set that up for the new year. Okay, cool. Awesome. So it sounds like you got a, it's, well, okay. Here's, here's the thing I want to ask you then. Okay. When you're moving forward for the next year, are you, what, what are, what are sort of your goals? Are you planning on releasing two or three more eBooks? Are you focused? Uh, are you have another, you know, pushing freckle forward? What, what are your, what's sort of your allocation of time? So I'm still working on that myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, not one for big, long, long-term plans like i have ideas not so much as plans but goals goal posts that i see i would like to create another business related info product that does not involve me teaching all the time i haven't decided 100 percent what that is i would like to um, relaunch and expand our training courses but not do as many of them right i'd like to, to earn more reach more people but without doing as many of them. So we're trying to think whether that makes sense as a product. Should we create some sort of learning product that's interactive or should we just do different types of classes? We're thinking about that. We want to launch our application called Charm, which is a support desk tool. But like, like Freckle is a time tracking tool, it's so much more than that. It's, it is 360 degrees around support and not just answering emails and getting them answered. Um, and I want to grow Freckle. So Charm is going to be very slow growth because the customers who are going to love it are going to need it all the time. And they're going to have very high volume emails that they have to answer and deal with and work with. And so I want to only allow a few people in at a time so that it doesn't go kablooey. And Freckle, though, I think we could at least double or triple the income in the next year if I play my cards right. Um, so Charm is what? Is that, is that just like it's still in an alpha stage or where are you in the development? We are using it. It okay. works. We are refining the interface and the workflow. Uh, okay. The workflow is very, very different than any support tool out there. And that's, that was me with my wireframing again. It's completely different. So why, just a question is, why wouldn't you focus 100% of your effort into growing uh, Freckle and building the revenue with Freckle? Why would you bother doing anything else versus just that? Because the payoff is very slow. So let's say you do a big marketing push and you get a whole bunch of new customers. You don't even see that money for the next 30 days. And more importantly, for each customer, it's like $12 or $24. So that's, but it requires a lot of effort. But over time, that builds up dramatically. And Freckle's already growing between 5 and 15% in revenue a month. Um, but to pay, again, we're, we're not using that money to pay our bills. We're paying our bills with other things. So we're paying our bills with the classes and with the info products. And so we need that ongoing cash flow. Like I want to hire somebody. And we got an apartment in Philadelphia because I was going insane. So 
that's some more money that we have to spend. And, well, we owe taxes, I suspect, finding that out. So there's like a cash. I'd like to have lots of cash. I feel better. <laughs> sure. Well, what, what, uh, just out of curiosity, why'd you pick uh, Philadelphia of all places? I have lots of friends here. There's already an amazing community of people doing all sorts of awesome stuff, not only in like tech, but also design and art and music, and food. And people here are super friendly. And right. it's, I don't, I like New York and I like San Francisco, but I don't think I'd want to live in either place. And Portland is my second favorite, but it's very far away from Europe. I see. Right. So, uh, okay. Now, one thing you talked about, which was really, um, I was cool, or you wrote about was called the year of the hustle. Yeah. And that was kind of when you put it all together, right? You just, you just decided I'm going to make it happen. Yes. And I'd like you to just kind of maybe summarize what the year of the hustle was all about for you. So my, my year of hustle was I decided that by the end of that year, I was going to be able to live without consulting anymore. And I didn't quite make it, but I, did, I didn't do any more uh, serious consulting except for one, one project, which is sort of a longstanding agreement and fun. Right. So I haven't done any consulting except for the PepsiCo Zeitgeist for South by Southwest, which is really an art project that I get paid for right. in, in 2010. So um, 2009 was my year of hustle. We launched the beta ebook of JavaScript Performance Rocks and the first month of money from Freckle came in January of 2009. And we pushed out the final version of JavaScript Performance Rocks in August of 2009. And we, we did our first training courses in 2009, late, like fall 2009, did a couple more after that. We did some corporate training as well, which is still better than consulting. <laughs> right. And I just wanted to, to, to be completely independent of of the freelancing because even at the dollar amount that I was able to charge like $500 plus an hour, it was just killing me. We had these, um, a lot of marketing agency clients and they're actually great in the sense that they pay on time and they're reliable and you get to do kind of cool stuff for them. Unlike the internal interaction design work I was doing before for like Bear Stearns. But at the same time, they're very demanding. But let me show you, did I hear that right? You charge $500 an hour? It worked out that way sometimes, yeah. Wow. Well, that's impressive. That's like a high-end lawyer fees. There's or, existence uh, proof for you, Jason. Your, your 100 wow. bucks an hour is, is nothing. You, you, well, you know, you're kind of cheap. Well, yeah. You know, actually, I talked to, um, I had lunch yesterday with a guy, uh, Michael Hartle. I think you may know him, Amy. Um, he did. He, he did the, he did a Rails uh, ebook. I think, um, I'm, i can't remember what what it was called, and he, and uh, he's he's done well. And he said, you know, he he asked me how much I charged, and I said a hundred dollars an hour, and he's like, yeah, that's too little, man. <laughs> you charge at least one hundred fifty, two hundred. I'm like, I do. <laughs> I was like, my wife would agree with you, but that's uh, yeah. Well, you should. So there's to promote Freckle. One of the things we're doing is freelance Ember, which is uh, not an advent calendar of freelance goodies, but something every day this month in December for freelancers to help them have better, happier businesses and lives. And uh, I like to tell people, and I use this quote in one of the freelance member gifts, you should tell your client your rate and then you should slap him in the face. And if he's not more shocked by the rate than the slap, you're not charging enough. So if you're fully booked or anything near it, you're not charging enough. It's just the bottom line. You should just charge until you stop getting clients. Right, right. It's purely market, market driven. 
Right. And the thing is that freelancers build assets to create wealth for their owners. And if you say, well, my clients actually never make any money with what I build for them. Well, then that's their fault. Right. It's not your fault. Then you should look for better clients. This is directed at everyone, by the way, not just you, Jason. Right. Sure. (laughs) Um, you know, I would, by the way, I just want to say that Michael Hartle's uh, book, I just found his ebook is called RailsTutorial.org, which apparently is really top-notch. Um, cool. I, I feel bad that I couldn't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But um, uh, so, yeah, that's interesting, $500 an hour. But, yeah, even then, you just felt the stress of it, of, of having to deal with client work was just not worth it, and uh, no matter how much they paid you, I guess. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I've been really, really, really broke <laughs> and in debt. And you had my car stolen (laughs) and I've been able to make lots and lots of money. And I know where I'd rather be is, is not charging $500 an hour, but making a lot less, maybe even off products because of the freedom and the control and no one will butcher your product. You know, they can't, it's yours. And you know, you get to work directly with the people who actually use your product. Like when I build stuff for marketing agencies or like Bear Stearns, I never actually get to, to see the work in use, you know, exactly. I think yeah. building your own products is just much more humane in a lot of ways. So if you're talking to, if, if you're giving advice to people and I, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, this is obviously the kind of things you talk about in your launch classes, but just sort of synopsizing it. If you're talking to people who are working either full-time job or freelancing and they want us, they want to start launching their own products or, you know, creating that kind of freedom for themselves. What are the first things they should start doing? Well, freelancers should raise their rates and take on fewer clients. Okay. That way you can free up time to work on your own products and also energy. Right. And people who have jobs, well, that varies. So at one of my jobs, I actually negotiated a four-hour work week with no reduction in pay when I had gotten a much better offer from another company, and I used that as a bargaining chip. Nice, yeah. And I was not, like, super critical to this company either, but they wanted to keep me. So okay. I was able to negotiate a four-day work week instead of a pay raise. A four-day work week? Four-day work week. Okay, cool. Because a four-hour work week would be good. No, no, no. Four-day. But that was before, that was before the 37 Signals guys wrote about it, so I'm proud. <laughs> well, you, you know one thing before you, before you go on about that, one thing I'll say is that, you know, you're talking about raising your rates and negotiating a four-day uh, work week. I mean, both those things are about creating um, sort of a, a, a scarce quantity, right? So that you have to create a market for yourself. It's like when you're, when you want to sell something, you need multiple bidders if you want to maximize your price. Because if, if someone realizes they're only, they're the only bidder for you, for what you have, you're not going to be able to convince them to charge a rate. So if you have one client or one or two clients in there and you don't have any other clients looking potential clients wanting your time, you can't just say, well, look, I don't think $100 an hour or $50 an hour, whatever you're charging is fair. I, I think I deserve more. And they're going to be like, well, I'm not going to pay that. And you're kind of stuck. But if you can go out and say, okay, I'm currently charging $100 an hour, run out and you try and find some other clients at $150 or $200 an hour. And if you get a, if you get a bite, great. Then you could use that to leverage your other clients up or just take a, or move to the new client. And it, but if you don't get a bidder, then you just, you know, you could at least stay at your 100 and I think so, the same thing goes for jobs, right? I think that's flawed reasoning. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> it, it, you should all, they should always need you more than you need them. If you okay. only have one client, especially if they know that, you screwed up. Because it's not really consulting then. It's like a job, but without any security whatsoever or benefits or tax withholding. Um, you're, they're, you're totally at their mercy. But at the same time, if they need you, badly and they can't easily replace you 
and you could do good work and they're happy with you, then chances are you could still negotiate a, a raise. Otherwise, people would never get raises in their jobs. Hmm. Yeah. So you think you don't need yeah, okay? Well, it's just a little riskier though, right? Because if if they don't need you, I mean, they may need you, but they may not realize they need you until it's too late, or maybe kind of emotional, right? Sure, and that's why it's it's your job to present it in a way that shows how you benefit their business. So, lot rational people pay for things based on value. So they say, well, I'm going to pay you hundred dollars an hour. So this thing you're going to build for me for five thousand dollars will eventually earn me eight thousand dollars in business. And if they're not thinking that way, then they're going to be bad clients, period. doesn't mean they don't have feelings about you in the work also. But if you can't present a case where you're paying me this, but you're still earning so much more. And if you went to someone else, it would cost you more. You wouldn't get as fast a result or you wouldn't have as good a relationship or blah, blah, blah. Um, And you can't persuade them to to, uh, let you charge more. Then they're pretty much going to be a client that's going to suck on you forever. So lots, lots of small clients are like that because they're, they're stupid. <laughs> they're, <laughs> okay. they're naive and they're unprofessional and um, they're, the things that they're building don't have actual business upsides. They're just sort of playing. How, do you, how did you or how do you land jobs for 500 bucks an hour with advertising agencies? Like how did that happen? How did they land in your lap? That grew out of a story. So we built this thing for fun, for enjoyment, for my personal like screw you gratification. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the advertising people loved it. So we, we did one really uh, tiny gig modification of Twist Story for the tennis channel through a small interactive agency in New York. And it totally was not at a profit, but they gave us so much more work and they introduced us to other clients. And then we got to do this high profile work for Pepsi at South by Southwest a couple years ago. And that led to even more of the clients reaching us. So there's a saying, I think it's actually English, Justin, it's like if you, the reward you get for digging holes is a bigger shovel. Have you heard that? (laughs) I think I have, yeah. So it means that you're going to get more of what you're already doing. So if you do quiet work that no one hears about for clients that are immature and unprofessional, there's not, that that work is not going to get you anything but more of the same. So if you're stuck in that rut, you have to figure out how to get yourself out of the rut. And one of those ways is to charge more. And it sounds like the other way, look, what you mentioned is to create something for fun on the side that really shows off what you can do. Yes. Right. And make it public, put it out in the Absolutely. web and try and promote it and say, look at this awesome thing. You may not have to charge for it, but this is just a, this is an example of the kind of magic I can make. Yep. It's advertising. Right. right. So when you charge $500 an hour, was it, did you put that on your rate? Like, you know, we charge by the hour and it's $500 rate, or we will build a sphere for $25,000 and you work was, that out. Based it was on a project rate. Yeah. Project okay. rate. Okay. Okay, because $500 an hour, I mean, it would seem like that would be hard for some companies to stomach unless you were, you know, I don't know, I, like I said, a, you know, a, a, an attorney or a corporate attorney or something. It sounds like they'd be like, well, whoa, you know. It's, a, it's important to realize that, and I said this with, with no ego whatsoever, in my space, I'm, mm-hmm. of this the stuff I was doing for these clients, there's no one else does it, who, do it, who does it at all. Okay. There's no one else they can go to. And there's, there's only one potential competitor, and that's Stamen, and they're still very different. Okay. And they charge way more than I do. So honestly, five hundred dollars an hour, or like ten or fifteen, twenty-five thousand dollars for these pro- projects, or in one case, fifty, was a great deal. Because if they went to an agency like Stamen, they'd be paying three times as much at least. So the other lesson there is to target to work with businesses where you can have a serious price advantage. So I can charge five hundred dollars an hour and still be cheaper than Stamen, and do better work. Right. I see. So okay. So back to your advice. You said okay. The first thing you do. 
if you're wanting to move into creating your own products, which is buy yourself some time by raising your rates or reducing yes. you know, our days of work. Okay, after that, what's what, what are the next steps? I would personally create something small and start to wean yourself off. So if you can create an income of a couple thousand dollars a month or three thousand dollars a month, that gives you so much more of a runway. If you quit your job, it means maybe you only have to quit with like three or four months savings instead of six or eight. And um, it'll get you there. So I, I freed myself incrementally. And I think that's the easiest, most, well, I wouldn't say the easiest. It's the least risky, most effective route. It involves stress and freakouts and lots of more work than if you build a product that suddenly earns thousands of dollars overnight. But it's foolproof if you are careful. Okay. So, now like, you, okay, I'm sorry, Ryan. I was going to say, just like info products are a great way. You can create things that maybe don't cost $39, but 15 20 or if you can really solve people's problems, you can name your price. So do you think the, in terms of info products, I mean, the two that come to my mind that are sort of obvious to build are ebooks and uh, screencasts. Um, I mean, do you have any preference for those or do you think you create, are they kind of go together like they're, they're complementary? You create one and then create the other? Or what do you think? There's a whole lot more options than that. Now, I like screencasts, but they take a lot of work to put together, more so than writing, in my experience. Um, there's also white papers and like studies and like other written content or PDF content or, or like I said, we're working on maybe learning software, web-based learning software or a learning environment. Lots of people in the info marketing space, and I mean non-sleazy ones who really provide a lot of value, are doing learning communities where there's regular content that's new and private, as well as group discussions and the owner occasionally pops in and answers questions. And those are all types of info products. Right. Membership yeah. sites. Yes. Yeah, well, you know what's interesting? So there, there's the concept of there's the whole saying that information wants to be free. And yet it seems like people are willing to pay for certain types of information presented in a certain format. In fact, I looked this up on Wikipedia because I kind of wanted to find out who... Uh, that phrase is attributed to, which is Stuart Brand. I think he uh, was the guy who founded the Whole, Wor Whole Earth Ad Catalog. Whole Earth yes. Catalog, right? And he, here's a quote. He says, he describes, he says, on the, on the one hand, information wants to be expensive because it's so valuable. The right information in the right place just changes your life. On the other hand, information wants to be free because the cost of getting it out is getting lower and lower all the time. So you have these two fighting against each other. So essentially... I mean, that's true, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of free information about, say, JavaScript on the web. There's tons of, you could go to Stack Overflow and you can, people write blog posts about stuff. But it sounds like there are plenty of people willing to pay if you can create something that's really high quality and presented in the right way. I mean, is that I think reason? you've got half of it. Okay. So the other half, I think, is that what people want isn't information. They want help. They want solutions. They want to not worry. So they don't want to waste 100 hours of their life putting together all the quote-unquote facts about JavaScript performance, only then not knowing how to decide what to do about it, what they just learned. So they also don't want to have to fight the way the information is presented. Often people don't respond to cold, hard facts. I know that the nerd audience, which usually includes me, will protest against that. They think that they want just the facts, but it's just not true. Human beings don't just want facts. They want guidance. They want opinions. That's why social proof or experience proof, like you said, is so important. 
people want advice. They want handholding. They want someone to point them in the right direction and make them feel safe. So yes, they want packaging. Yes, they don't want to waste their time looking, hunting down the information everywhere else on the internet, compiling it themselves. They want a narrative. They want it to be vetted by somebody and they want advice on how to implement it. So like I said earlier that no one would buy a business basics book, but they would buy a book that said, so you launched now what, how not to fail <laughs> because it's right. also actual problem as opposed to business basics, which no one cares about. No one wakes up and says, I want to buy a book on business basics. That sounds exciting. Mm. Right. Right. Um, and it sounds to me like you're, for the most part, aiming at the, I guess what David Hanemeyer Hansen coined the term, the Fortune 5 million, um, <laughs> which I love. It was in a talk he gave from Startup School 2008, and it's always stuck with me because anyone who hasn't watched that, go to YouTube or Google Video and do a search for Startup School 2008, um, you know, at David Hanemeyer Hansen, because that that he really illustrates like, look, you know, you try and build some, you try and build the next Facebook and yeah, maybe you can do it, but you're going to be, a, that's a one in a million. That's the Mary Angelina Jolie play. But if you build something that solves a business problem and it doesn't have involved this huge sales cycle to some enterprise that requires you to be a large corporation or a significant corporation yourself, then you have a lot of opportunity to make money because if you're trying to sell for consumers, they don't want to pay anything and they use exam and, you know, DHH use examples from their products that they sold that were more like consumer-based. They didn't make any money at them, and, but then when they sort of retarget them at small businesses, then all of a sudden their 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 uh, profit soared by like three hundred percent almost immediately. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on on that. I agree completely. I I have to admit that I still haven't watched that video, <laughs> but I absolutely agree with that. I mean, almost everything that that David has said about business, I agree with. I think. We're of the same mind on that. He's just way more famous <laughs> and has lots more money and at least one more Italian sports car than I have. Right, right. But yeah, I agree with that completely. And the easiest way to sell something is to say, look, if you pay X for this, you'll earn X plus Y, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's, that means so you have to sell to people who value things in terms of income or or business efficiency and that means you have to sell to people who are small businesses or freelancers or who want to be small businesses or freelancers because it's very easy to say for me to say to someone look i my product earned thirteen hundred dollars it's the very first month that's how my course costs seven hundred dollars if you even do half of what is in my course you will earn your money back and then some that's a very right. easy proposition to make i couldn't make it to someone who didn't want to make money Right. You know, and uh, here's another issue I think it would be interesting to get your feedback on. So, um, you know, the idea of competing in a space that already has an, uh, a number of, uh, of offerings. Um, so, for instance, um, we interviewed a couple weeks ago a guy uh, named uh, Amir, and I can't remember his last name. Salih that's right. Nice. And Amir created something called We Doist, which is a to-do, like a collaborative to-do list. And yeah. like, it's like, it's almost like a rite of passage. You have to create a blog engine and you have to write a uh, to-do list, right? And it would just seem like, well, how could you possibly make money in that? It's just, a, it's just another silly, you know, version of the same concept. But yet he makes enough money off that. He said that he wouldn't have to work anymore. But he does other things, and he's, he doesn't even care that there are other competitors out there. He's like, look, I make money anyway. It's continuing to grow. Um, you know, I've done some different things with it than other people have. So you don't want to go out and clone something, but you can go in and compete and create a variation on that. And um, 
Jason, is, I, is that I an answer sure. or a question? No, I yeah, that's a little bit of both. It's but I, I want to get her feeling on it because she's written a couple of applications that there are plenty of competitors. So I have I think three separate answers to that. Um, one of which is Thomas and I, with some help from our our friend, are building a to do list app, but it's not a product. It's advertising because it and a treat for our Freckle customers because it ties into Freckle. So you can track your time on your to-dos and focus on it like Pomodoro style and then track your time and then analyze it. And so you can't analyze it unless, of course, you save it to Freckle, which means you have to have a Freckle account. So my goal is like, how can I get on Lifehacker again? And that is my answer. So That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm building this as a promotional tool and I think it will eventually grow into a product, but that's way down the road because it requires a lot more to be a paying product. But that's not the only way to make money or something. You can, I'm monetizing it directly with my own products as opposed to trying to sell Google ads, which never pays off. Well, sure. almost never. Angelina Jolie style. Right. The second one is I tell my, my launch class is called 30 by 500, which is because if you have 500 customers who pay you $30 a month or 30, 30 customers who pay you $500 a month, that's an easy gross revenue of $180,000 a month. And you could build almost anything if it could provide $30 worth of value to 500 people across the entire internet, that is not hard. You don't need millions of customers. You only need 500, and that's a pretty good living, and that's a manageable business for one person. thousand a year, is that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say a month. I was like, wait a minute, I think that math's off a little bit, but <laughs> I'm sorry, I like, did I say a, I like those I say, numbers. <laughs> did I say a month? I'm sorry, a year. Yeah. That's still a lot of money. Right, it's, that'd be great. It's, it's right. good money, you know. Two, pe you could support two people on that as long as you were able to do your taxes right, and or you lived in a cheap area. No, yeah, I, I, got, I, got, I, 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 uh, I support five off a lot less than 180. <laughs> well, there you go. So yeah, 180 would 180 would go uh, well. Of course, three of them are little kids, but nevertheless. Oh, we only need braces. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but so yes, that, that's that's very achievable. So it's like. Adam Smith, you know, Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, talked about the distinction between small markets and large markets. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone buys from you, but in a small town, he said that a woodworker would have to make all sorts of things because a small town would not support a specialty service like only barrel making. But in a large market like London, enough people would need barrel making that you could have people who just did barrel making. And the internet is the largest market ever. So if you can do one thing, it's not and as long as it provides business value to somebody, you're not going to have that hard a time getting just 500 customers. That's awesome advice. That's, all, that's an awesome way of thinking about it. And it's like, because when, when people talk about niches, and we, we talk with Patrick McKenzie about being a card creator, and I was kind of incredulous, like, how could you get into a niche where you're just creating bingo cards for teachers and that's your whole niche? But it's like, yeah, there's enough people in the whole world that that can be a very good business. And so you know, you can, you can just get very, very small in the, from a niche point of view. But it's a hell of a lot easier if he sold it to business instead of teachers who are phenomenally poor. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You're right. True. Good point. So Which I think he's doing with his new product. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. The appointment reminder. Yes. Yeah. Cause we, yeah, we had him on a few weeks ago. He was telling us about that. So, and you said you had a third answer. Yeah, I think it's my mind. Okay. Hold on. So <laughs> I do that all the time. I always say I have two. I have two things to say, and then I never remember the second one. Anyway, there was a knockout list, which is our to-do list. It was the thirty by five hundred, and 
I'm sorry. I can't think of That's, what it third one. No was. problem, because I got I got a, I got a, uh, another question about that. So when you talk about um, when you want to launch something, you come up with sort of like goals, like okay, what we want to do is hit a thousand dollars a month for the first month, and then two, you know, three months out, let's hit. 2000. I mean, do you have some kind of mental framework for like how you're going to get from A to Z um, in terms of your revenue goals? I honestly don't for the most part. Like for Freckle, I had no idea. I didn't have specific goals. I just knew that I should do X, Y, and Z to get as many people as possible. Um, I work a lot on, on, on gut instinct, which I built by many, 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 many years of reading business books and just analyzing what I saw around me. And so usually what happens is I go with what my gut tells me I should be doing and then I figure out why that is. So, right. that's the, which is terrible advice. I don't recommend anyone else do it that way because I'm sure I could have a lot more money if I were more systematic. <laughs> One thing is like, how would you, I mean, when you're just starting out, you're doing your first product, how would you know what a sensible goal to set was? I mean, you wouldn't have any experience under your belt. So you wouldn't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, That's yeah, a very good point. Well, I mean, I think here's a, a couple things. Um, one is, um, right, I mean, when you're doing stuff that's new, um, you right, you, it's, it's fun to set a little bit of goals just to kind of give yourself something to shoot for. It's like, Justin, we said, okay, we want to have, you remember at the beginning of the summer, we said by the end of the summer, we want to be able to get 500 downloads of a show within a week. Right. Right. And we got that. And now it's, now it's like we want to get 1,000 by the end of the year of a discussion show. And we're almost there. Now, it doesn't mean anything, but it does. It just keeps you focused on something. So like when you're focused on analytics, you're like, okay, how can we get there? It's almost like it's a fun competition with yourself. Right. It focuses you on that number as opposed to just like, well, it grows as fast as it grows. And may, maybe, maybe there's not a whole lot you can do about it, but it's just like a fun game. The, the second thing about it, which is interesting, I was, again, I was talking with Michael Hartle yesterday. We had lunch. He was a guy we... Uh, uh, I'm uh, Justin. And I met at the uh, Ruby meetup last week. Do you remember Justin? Yeah, I yeah. remember. So one thing he said, he was talking about the success that he was having with his um, Rails tutorial um, uh, ebook, and he said, he said, you know, he was talking about all the things that he he was still succeeding and all the things he hadn't done yet. He's like, yeah, I hadn't done that. I haven't done that. And I was asking him about a lot of the things that we learned from Ilya with the paid traffic sources and all these other things. He's like, you know, I. The thing is, I just haven't had time to do those things, and I realize I haven't done them, but I'm succeeding anyway. So, yeah, I'm really excited to try those things and do those things. And I think that's the case. It's like you don't have to do everything right to succeed. You just have to do a few things right, it seems like, and then you can get those other things right later on as you have time. It's yeah. absolutely true. And also, I'd like to say that you can screw up a lot and still have good results. <laughs> it's just it's really, it's really right. about the doing, isn't it? Even I mean, I do have a, a goal. But for the most part, I'm very much just putting one foot in front of the other, but I'm very good at it. Like, it's automatic, I guess, all those years of squeaking by. But, like, I want to hire people, like, full-time, and we, we can't afford that just yet. So we have a couple freelancers who work for us, and they're great. But I would like to hire someone full-time to work with me to set the goals for the products and to help me do the interaction design. And I, I know who I want to hire, and I know who, how much money I need. And so now I, I really am thinking, how can I get to that money, amount of money, to hire her and feel confident that I can keep, continue to pay her salary? Um, so that's a goal. But the problem with setting little goals like that as your as your way of motivating yourself is, well, what if you should have been setting it like three times higher, you know? Mm -hmm. like it's, it's like attention, I guess. Hey, Jason, um, right. just to let you know, uh, we should think about wrapping up the show at this stage. 
we're okay. like an hour Great. and a half. Well, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, before we end, um, I, I just want to ask you, um, Amy, are there any, uh, any other things that you think would be worth discussing, the topics that we skipped over or that you'd like to bring up? Well, I feel like we covered a lot. And like the main message that I would like to get out there is that if you redefine your, your idea of what success is, you'll find that it's actually very easy to reach. So like the 30 by 500 formula actually makes it very clear that it's not that hard. Like all you need is 500 customers or 30 for 500. And that's really achievable. You don't have to be the best designer and programmer ever. You don't have to be an amazing marketer. You don't have to be a luminary in your field. And you certainly don't have to invent a new category of product to get that few customers. It's not necessary. You just need to have one or two minor improvements that reach 500 people. In fact, crowded markets are, can be really good. Now I remember what the third thing was. <laughs> okay. Can I, can I slide it in there? Yeah, go. So Absolutely. Go the third thing was, I was talking to Gary Levitt of Mad Mimi earlier today. And if you don't know Mad Mimi, um, it's a mailing list service. But it's way, it's a very different design and branding style than, like, say, MailChimp. Very different. And right. I personally think that their, their interactive builder is much better than MailChimp's, for, for example. And they're sort of stealthy, and, but they're, they're doing very well. And they're in an extremely crowded market, as he pointed out. And he said to me that he gets to ride, his company gets to ride on the backs of the other companies that are marketing mailing list tools to everyone. Because they're increasing the understanding among people. They're increasing awareness of the idea of even having a tool. Right. And so that when people, people are thinking, oh, well, maybe I need a mailing list tool. And then they go and they try to decide which one they should do or they, they use one and they don't like it. And then he has the opportunity to swoop in and basically ride on their wave. And that they're seeing lots of growth thanks to other companies marketing their mailing list tool services. Interesting. Do you, do you, did he convey to you any marketing ideas of how you do that? I mean, is this kind of thing where you pay for... I think Ilya, who we interviewed a couple weeks ago, talked about how you do competitor bidding. So you would you would buy um, Mailchimp <laughs> ad, maybe an ad, you know ad word or something or AdSense word or I can't remember, I can't remember what the term is, but uh, I don't know. Did he ever? Did he have any ideas of how you would do that? No, I'm, I think they're not very advertising based. Like like Freckle is okay. not advertising based, but that they have extremely happy users. They have incredible customer support. Like I've never had better email customer support from anyone ever. And I wasn't even emailing them about the product. Um, they have a shared mailbox and everyone answers like really fast, 24 hours a day. And yeah, super helpful. That's, that's... And um, when they send out their newsletters, it has a little badge on the bottom that says Mad Mimi. So I believe that they get a lot of people talking. You know, they're definitely in the lists of services when you look up lists of them. And that okay. their customers are super happy. They're doing something different. And they're earning a lot more than 30 by 500. They have plenty of employees, I get the feeling. Wow. Hmm. Well, what, uh, what's the domain again for this it's service? It's mad, M-A-D, Mimi, M-I-M-I dot com. Mad Mimi. Okay. And, uh, you know, before we um, close down here, I, I want to ask you just, uh, you know, because I'm sure some of our listeners might be interested in your, uh, your launch course. Um, how much does it cost? When does it start? What do they, what will they get out of it? So I'm going to run another one beginning probably in April. Uh, I couldn't tell you the exact cost. I may or may not increase the price. The current one was $750. Okay. And 
the current format is it's four months of teaching with a one month break when they're doing their their audience research because it's okay. too much work to do that and do the lessons at once. And um, I'm available for questions by email and to kick people's butts on the forum and, and all that good stuff. And so far, several of my alumni from the first class, which was essentially it was a beta and I've then redone most of the material and invited them all back to the new class. Uh -huh. uh, several of them have launched products, including mm -hmm. eBooks. And I know that they're making, they certainly made back the money those who have started making products and that's really exciting right and has anyone made the 30 by 50 not yet but the last class only ended in june oh okay. so it hasn't been very long yeah that's not <laughs> enough time yeah, yeah yeah but if they've made back the the investment i mean already that's awesome it's cool. yeah it's definitely a win-win proposition it's not hard to make 750 dollars on products it's really easy in fact it's it's scaling it up to the hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year that's a bit harder how um how do, just real quick how does a course work so it's 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 an online course is it through forums discussion groups do you do screen sharing and what what do you do so how it works is there is a weekly lesson which has a theme um, and okay. it builds up and that's delivered as in PDF written form with diagrams <laughs> really okay. really tightly written very very tightly written so it's extremely compact and that's delivered by email. And then there's homework, which is a form you can fill out on the web, on the, the private community site. And there's also a forum. So we discuss each lesson and I'm there to, to help people who are confused or clarify thinking. And there's also um, campfire chats where I'm live okay. answering questions, helping people. People can meet each other. That's good. The students like that. And there are also audio lessons, which are like podcasts where I talk more personal stories to, yeah, existence proof, that kind of thing. So, so do the podcast, do you do one for every week or is it just like you have a handful spread throughout six, the, the show? There's six throughout the... Six? Yeah. And when you, and when you do the uh, chats, are you on for like maybe a couple hours a week or how exactly. do they have a access Exactly. A couple hours. Um, so far, it has been twice a month. Okay. But I'm available by email also. People can ask me questions. So it's, it is very similar to taking like a college course. You know, it's, you have office hours. And yes. You have, yeah. It's almost exactly like taking a college course. Right, which is with more support. Uh, <laughs> yeah, with more support. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's like some of those online courses, and that you have your your homework, and you got your your source material and stuff. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, the, uh, that's yeah. I'm sorry. Go on. I was gonna say, but the material is unlike any college course. It's extremely action oriented. Okay. Right. So you go out and do these things and then we move on to the next step. Right. You're kind of yes. just it's like training wheels. This, you have this idea. You have this thing you think you want to do. Here's how we're going to step you through to get you to where you need to be. Actually, I start off by telling people that they should ignore that idea and that they're doing it backwards. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it kind of reminds me, it's almost like personal training for entrepreneurs. Right. You know, someone says, oh, I want to yes. put on 10 pounds of muscle and learn 30 pounds, lose 30 pounds of fat. I have this vague idea of exercise and diet and stuff, but really I need someone to bust my butt and someone I have to meet with two or three times a week and puts me through it and has a schedule and we have a plan and, and gets me to where I need to be. That's that's actually a very good comparison, because I honestly think that being in running your own business is. Like weight loss. It's not like weight loss. It's like, it's like life, but multiplied in intensity. It's like all the same problems you have in your life, you're going to have in your business. But in your business, you really have to deal with them or you'll have measurable results or not. Oops, sorry. Sirens. Sirens. So like, it will bring up emotional issues. <laughs> so right. Jason, um, do you think, uh, I mean, I don't think we can keep on going forever. 
No, I think we can end. I just, I'm sorry. I just, uh, I just want to get this few last questions in because I know our audience um, is going to be interested in uh, in the launch class, and I want to make sure people understood what it was all about. In fact, I, I want to make sure Thank I understood. Sure. Well, Amy, it was a real pleasure meeting you, and I'm I'm so happy that we could finally get this organized. Because what was it been like six months of emailing back and forth or something? Yes, periodically. Yes. It oh, has been thank awesome. Thank you so much. It I've had a awesome. lot of fun. And we have too. It's been it's been well worth the wait. Um, and what we'd like to do is get you on sometime in the future, maybe after you've launched, um, your, you know, Charmed um, or any other interesting thing that you're doing. You'd like to talk about it. We'd love to have you back on again. That would be uh, awesome. I would and love if that. If you come to LA, and yeah, well, and, and if you come to LA, we'll not only take you to coffee, we will take you out to dinner, you and your husband. So if you guys ever travel to the LA area, please send us an email, and we'll, uh, yeah, we'll take you out. It'd be great to meet you in person. Thank you, and, and vice versa. And I'm pretty sure that we'll be taking you up on that sometime in the next year. Awesome, fantastic. All right, that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs> <laughs>